Welcome, everyone. This is Sasha. Sasha talks on moving mountains. Today's guest is an American author, columnist, and cultural commentator. A frequent television and radio guest, he has appeared on CNN, CNN International, Fox News, Al Jazeera America, and BBC. You can find his columns on issues of faith and culture in the Atlantic, USA Today. CNN.com and The Blaze. He is also the author of The Grace Effect and The Faith of Christopher Hitchens. Joining us today to discuss his latest book, Around the World in More Than 80 Days, is Larry Alex Taunton. Welcome, Larry, to Moving Mountains today. It's a pleasure to be with you, Sasha. Congratulations on your latest book, Around the World in More Than 80 Days. How many? How long did it take you to write the book? Well, the, uh, the the whole research process was three years, and uh, it was three years' worth of traveling. Um, the actual writing of the book, I suppose, altogether probably took me about, uh, oh, maybe eight months. Given the nature of your work where you celebrate America and defend the Christian faith, was there any event or experience that triggered you to say, I'm going to go out, write a book, and really explore the idea, is America as great as we claim it is? Uh, you know, I, I don't know that there was a, a single event, but I suppose it might have started the way that I started the book, with, and that's with Colin Kaepernick, which many of your listeners will be familiar with, others uh, perhaps not, but he was the uh, the former NFL football player who began taking a knee during the uh, the national anthem before football games, and now he's become a, you know, kind of an icon with Nike and a, uh, the face of the so-called resistance. And, uh, you know, I, the more I listened to Kaepernick, who speaks very little, and uh, read the things that were coming out of his organization, uh, almost all of it um, just full of anger and hatred for this country, I couldn't help but think that a, a generation like him are just full of ignorance about the opportunities that they have in this country and what the rest of the world is like. So I set out to demonstrate to them um, both. You traveled about to 26 countries. Did you come up with a list or an idea before you got on the, the first flight, or did you take it as you went by assessing the economic and social climate in different parts of the world? We had a very careful plan about where we were going and what we were going to do. Uh, but if you and I, let's say, were to make a list, you know, we're seeking to give out the uh, a mythical championship, a title of world's greatest country. And if you and I were to make a list of countries that we think are legitimate competitors for that title, uh, we'd probably be looking at a list of no more than 10 countries. So that number of countries is quite small. But uh, So there were certain countries that had to be included, and those are countries that the left would hold up to us as a model for what they think America should be. But I also decided to include many other countries to, uh, to give the reader a flavor 
um, for, um, you know, many of the things that are going on in the world. Uh, you know, most of the world lives under some form of totalitarianism. Uh, I wanted to show them uh, former Marxist countries, none of which, by the way, are in the, uh, the running for world's greatest country. Not even the left would hold them up um, as a model for that, to show them what's happening in Africa with Islam. And, uh, and also because the book is an adventure. I mean, it's inspired by Jules Verne's, you know, original story around the world in 80 days where Phileas Fogg, you know, uh, you know, goes by every mode of transportation around the world. That's what we did, too. So it's a it's a fun read. But at the same time, we're educating the reader as we go. Were there any countries where you visited and you were surprised by how they perceive America and Americans for better or worse? Y- yes. Um, Actually, I was quite surprised. I was surprised to discover, um, you know, before I took this trip, I I had already been in probably 40 countries, you know, before this. So I was I was already very well traveled. But that said, um, you still encountered some surprises. I mean, to discover, for instance, in Africa that that Donald Trump is quite popular, um, at least uh, among those countries that aren't Islamic. Um, to discover that Americans are quite popular, say, in a place like Vietnam. I was, I was prepared um, for Americans to be, you know, hated there. Uh, there, were, there were many surprises uh, as, I, as I went a, a, along the way. And, uh, uh, you know, um, it's, uh, it's quite fascinating, the, uh, the many things you learn about travel, about yourself, uh, about where you're from and about other countries and, uh, and, you know, we weren't just out to, to say America's you know, everything that we do is great and better because I don't believe that. Um, so we learned quite a lot along the way about other countries and uh, things that we admired greatly. Well, you also got to observe the socioeconomic status within those countries. Do you believe the middle class in America is still better off compared to the middle class in other countries? Uh, yes, very much so. And, uh, that uh, is is changing, um, and, uh, and it stands to change an awful lot, in my view, if Democrats uh, win the presidency and if they were to have control of Congress. Uh, it's quite clear that their taxation, um, you know, policies that they would implement will be crushing um, to the middle class, and will increasingly look uh, the way Western Europe um, is is looking in regards to that. But I still think that America is the freest country on earth. And there's a reason why people around the world want to come to this country, and that's it. You also haven't traveled with your son. Were there any observations that your son shared with you that you were able to infuse in your book? Yeah, um, my son, it's very interesting. I have, I have three boys, but two of them participated in uh, various parts of this journey. My my middle son, Christopher, you know, was along for about, I don't know, six, eight, ten countries. And Zachary was with me for, for almost all of the ones that are included in the book. I didn't take him to the more dangerous countries. I, I didn't want any of my, my children with me in those places. But, um, but their, their perspective was very interesting because they're millennials. And their, their perspective of, or I should say they're Gen Zers, I guess. And their perspective on their own generation um, was interesting. Zachary was making little video blogs uh, that he was posting along the way as, you know, people his age were following his own adventure and the things that, uh, that he was doing. But I, 
I think it was very eye-opening for both of my children, not because they hate this country. They both love the United States. But I think uh, even as well-traveled as they were, uh, they came home with a much greater appreciation for the United States of America. Out of all of the books that you've written, was this a book that was easier to write? You know, I would say that this book in many ways was, um, it was, it was easy and it was hard. It was, it was hard in that it was extremely expensive. I mean, you can well imagine what it must cost to, we actually went to 35 countries for the writing of this book. We just decided not to include, um, you know, eight or so of them just because we didn't want the book to get too long. You know, so in that sense, it was very challenging, exhausting. Global travel is exhausting. A lot of people look forward to traveling to other countries. For me at this stage, I just, I just want to go sit at the beach and put my feet up. You know, I've, I, I, I feel, <laughs> you know, <clears throat> excuse me, very traveled out. Um, on the other hand, um, the book was easier to write insofar as it um, played to every skill and experience and educational background that I have. So I, I felt this was very much in my wheelhouse, as they say. Were there any locations that you wanted to visit, but out of concern your loved ones or your colleagues told you to reconsider? Uh, yes, great question. Um, Nigeria. Um, my, uh, my family was anxious about that. They understood why I wanted to go there, and it wasn't just as a vacation. I had been invited there by a Nigerian bishop um, to write on the Christian persecution that is going on in that country. Christians are being slaughtered globally at a rate of 100,000 per year, mostly at the hands of, uh, of Muslims. That translates to 11 per hour, uh, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. So uh, I wanted to go there and to tell their story, and I wrote a series of articles for Fox News, and I included um, a, a fairly substantial chapter in this book about my experiences in Nigeria because it is uh, arguably and often cited as the most dangerous country in the world, and that's for a reason because, you know, when I arrived at the airport, Sasha, um, you know, there were – there were um, executives uh, on the plane um, who work for oil companies, white people. And the moment you go out, you know, through customs, they just disappeared. They disappeared into armored cars. And here I am left standing there quite obviously. And the bishop picked me up in his Toyota Sequoia. They put me in the back seat where the windows are darkened, and they laid the seat down so that I would not be visible. And, uh, and then we drove for six hours uh, um, north uh, on terrible roads um, through country that the Fulani herdsmen militia and Islamic sect um, very frequently, um, you know, attacks cars, attacks villages. We went through smoldering villages. Uh, I visited with people whose family members had been murdered, slaughtered, um, taken into slavery, raped. Uh, these kinds of things. So, yes, my family was anxious about that, and there were, there were a few others um, that I also went to. But that said, my family and, and my, uh, my friends are somewhat accustomed to me doing some of these things. So, uh, you know, Nigeria was, was, was kind of a, uh, especially scary for them, but some of the others uh, they, they weren't quite as worried about. 
Thank you for sharing that detail. I was going to touch upon whether you traveled with security guards, being an American and knowing that in some global environments, we tend to be a very easy target. Yes. Well, that's a, that's a, that's a very good point. And we weighed this. And in fact, a very dear friend of mine who, um, who has a lot more money than I do, um, begged me to let her send um, two armed security guards with me to Nigeria. And I refused that, uh, not out of some kind of bravado or foolishness, but I decided that it would single me out as important. And um, the reality is one of the things you discover in the third world is that, uh, for instance, I, you know, I have a conceal and carry license, you know, good in this country, not, not there. Um, but, you know, you think to yourself uh, when you arrive in some of these countries, gosh, if I had my nine millimeter, a pistol, a Glock, you know, with me. And then it dawns on you that everybody's carrying an AK-47. Uh, your Glock is useless. You just as well, you know, have a, you know, a, a, a slingshot. Um, they'll make Swiss cheese of your automobile in, in seconds. Um, so you weigh the risk of do I have security, in which case it, uh, you stand out just a little bit more, or do I just try to keep a very low profile and um, uh, try to be not visible? Um, and that's, that's important in doing some of these things. And, you know, you talk about Americans standing out. You're so right. You know, Americans are often told when they travel, try to blend in. Well, that's nonsense. The rest of the world spots you a mile away. Now, they might confuse you with a Canadian, let's say, um, but they know you're not from their country. We, uh, it's not just simply the way we dress. It's the way we carry ourselves. It's, uh, it has to do with our, our, uh, um, our gestures, um, yeah, all of it, even before we open our mouths and they, you know, they hear an accent. So um, you, you need to be very wise how you go about these things. And in my mind, you know, I listened very carefully to the locals who I knew cared about me personally and would give me good advice. I would do everything they would tell me to do um, because they know the culture better than I do and they know where I should go and where I shouldn't go and, uh, and this sort of thing. And then, you know, just add to that, you know, when you're in some of these very dangerous circumstances and you are visible, it's better to act confident, to just move about confidently. And, you know, I find myself in crowds of people who are pushing up against me uh, in, uh, let's say, for instance, in a place like Nigeria, and I just push back. I just, I just move through the crowds. And I tell people to get away from me. And, um, and I, if they push on me, I, I push twice as hard. So, um, you know, there, there are things you learn from years and years of travel. And one more travel curiosity. Given your profession, were there any countries that you pursued traveling to but you were denied a visa for one reason or another, or it may have been linked yes. to your profession? Yes, China. Really? Uh, interestingly enough, yes, China, which is in the news right now, of course, so much because it's quite clear that they have been paying um, Joe Biden through his son, Hunter Biden, and uh, the Chinese. I was in China in 2010, and um, uh, I was watched very carefully uh, where I went and what I did, and I associated quite a lot, among many other things, but I associated quite a lot with the indigenous um, Christian population. And I wrote about my experiences there. Well, this time when I applied, the Chinese said that I could not come into the country unless I signed a document stating that I would write nothing negative 
about China. And, uh, you know, I flatly refused. I have loads of negative things to say about China. And uh, so I wrote about China anyway because I'd already been there. And, um, and uh, on this trip, I was in Hong Kong seven times. And that's because Hong Kong is the Atlanta, if you will, of um, the Far East. Uh, that is to say, almost anywhere you're going in Asia, you have to go through Hong Kong first. And so I was there quite a lot. Uh, I had loads of positive things to say about China before the, uh, excuse me, about Hong Kong before the Chinese government um, has crushed it and absorbed it. But uh, yes, I was denied a visa into China. Larry, you also happen to be a cultural commentator. What are your thoughts on the First Amendment? Do you believe that's being abused because there are those that share messages to drive shock value and they're propagating negativity while there are people who write from a place of sensibility, practicality, and facts, and their messages are being suppressed? Yes, um, I, uh, I do believe that. I think that um, what we're seeing in this country is... Um, quite alarming. It's Chinese-style censorship. Um, I mean, if I were to write the book again, I would, I would add something about um, the in, infringements upon the First Amendment uh, in, in this country that I find quite alarming. I mean, in past, we have had the National Enquirer and TMZ and these kind of publications that Americans uh, always were left to decide for themselves um, what they believed and what they didn't believe. In other words, the American people were, were um, left to make up their own minds. But now um, we have, you know, probably some millennial or Gen Zer at, uh, uh, at Twitter or Facebook or Instagram who doesn't like what you say, and they simply shut down your accounts. Uh, this has happened to the President of the United States, to his press secretary. The New York Post, which was founded by Alexander Hamilton, uh, has endured over 200 years of American history. Their accounts are currently locked with Facebook and Twitter. That, to me, is appalling. It's shocking. And, uh, and that's because I believe that the First Amendment allows you to say what you want to say. And it's left to me to decide whether or not I think it's distasteful or I want to subscribe to it or I want to follow you or not. But I do believe that you have the right to speak your mind openly and freely. And we're seeing big tech say, no, you don't. We're going to shut you down if your opinions are opinions we do not like. How do you forecast the future of the First Amendment five years from now? Great question. Um, I fear that we are headed um, the direction of Europe. Britain and France, um, Germany, these countries, there's no free speech um, that's gone. Um, you're not allowed to say um, particularly, particular things that the government finds um, distasteful. And, uh, and so I believe that that's where we're headed, where the First Amendment, and by the way, the Second Amendment, um, I think that uh, if Biden is elected, I think these will be gone in the next five years. Do you believe that the culture is posing a threat to the First Amendment, or is it the government in the United States? Well, I think that it's uh, the, the government is, of course, a reflection of the culture, and um, there are those uh, in key positions of power uh, who simply, you know, we've been told for a very long time in this country that it's all about tolerance. It's all about dialogue. You know, that was... A, a cultural buzzword for the last 25 years. 
dialogue. Well, there are those who, they don't want dialogue with you. They don't want to talk with you. They don't want to hear your opinion. If they don't like what you're saying, they don't like who you are, they simply seek to shut you down. And that's very dangerous for the future of this country. And I I say this because if you're listening to this podcast and you're saying, hey, I like what Big Tech is doing to the president of the United States or his press secretary of the New York Post because I don't like their opinions, uh, let me warn you, because the time will come where they'll censor your opinion. In other words, I believe in the First Amendment for you. I believe in the First Amendment for people who disagree with me. And I hope that they believe in the First Amendment for me, too, because it's part of what creates a healthy culture when we have a healthy society, when we have an open marketplace of real discussion and dialogue. Is there any country outside of the United States that comes as close to how we practice the First Amendment? Or do you believe that majority of the countries have already, they're already in the censorship lane? Well, um, I think that any countries that are, that are, that are countries that, that we would say are, quote unquote, first world countries, they've almost all eliminated free speech in one form um, or another. And the rest of the world free speech uh, is suppressed in a different way. And that is to say, for instance, in uh, Putin's Russia or Xi's uh, Xi's, um, China, uh, people just disappear or they're arrested or they're beaten with a rubber hose and told what they will and they won't say. Um, So America is an outlier in many ways. And Sasha, this is kind of one of my points in the book. America's greatness uh, is, is so unique. It's so um, fragile that it can be destroyed rapidly. And we're seeing a movement from within to destroy this country. And it's, it's fascinating to me. My father fought in two wars against Marxists, against Marxists. And now we are seeing um, within our own government, in our own society, people who would have us adopt Marxist policies, a Marxist worldview, Marxist economics. And this is extremely dangerous, and I think it has everything to do with the fact that many people in this country, particularly the young, are extremely ignorant about not only our own history, but they're, they're ignorant as to um, the history of Marxism. With the works that you also produce, the material is also used and communicated through your debate. Are there any new debates on the horizon? And is there any personality on your list that you would love to debate in the present? Well, that's a very good question. I don't have any major debates in the works. You know, what's very interesting about that question is we became very well known. uh, The nonprofit that I run, Six Point Foundation, became very well known our debates with atheists, guys like Richard Dawkins, and I debated Christopher Hitchens, and Michael Shermer, and Daniel Dennett, and Peter Singer, and John Lennox was a very important part of those debates, along with Dinesh D'Souza and, and, uh, and others. The debate now has moved on and on. Now we are seeing a generation that has absorbed those ideas and has, is seeking to implement them in one form Um, or another. I I frankly would love to take on um, some of the media figures who are pushing um, some of this Marxist nonsense. 
um, because I, I'm wondering, are, are they really just, um, just that ignorant as to what Marxism really is, as to the total economic, um, uh, physical, material, and spiritual deprivation that has been wrought around the world by socialism and, and Marxism in its many forms? Or is it, is it that they um, really uh, just don't care uh, about their own country and they're willing to say whatever it takes um, if they're paid to do it? I, that, that's something I, I, I don't know the answer to, but I would be very interested in, in taking on advocates of these ideas. And as we begin to wrap things up, what message do you have for aspiring writers and those who want to mimic your footsteps of whether it's cultural commentary going out and debating, but they may have some apprehension or reservations about the First Amendment and how messages are being filtered? Will their good efforts go to waste or how could they leverage off the present condition? Well, you know, young writers, I would say, um, don't go to journalism school. Um, don't do that. Um, right now, we're seeing uh, often young writers, you know, being uh, being indoctrinated um, with uh, erroneous ideas uh, in in journalism schools, and also not really learning the right um, techniques of writing and research and uh, and that sort of thing. Out of all of the works that have been uh, published this year, is there any new works on the horizon? Yes, I am working on a novel uh, that it's it's not as yet, you know, in, in the pipeline in terms of, you know, it's not set, doesn't have a release date. And I'm also very interested in writing a, uh, uh, a biography of sorts of Karl Marx and his life in London. You know, most people don't realize that he lived the last four decades of his life in London. And uh, one of uh, his rivals was a man by the name of Charles Spurgeon, a Baptist preacher who lived in London his entire life. But, but Spurgeon attracted enormous crowds. And uh, both men were famous during their own lifetime. And uh, both men knew of each other. They knew, recognized that their, their ideas were opposite of one another. And both were, were seeking the souls of men which I find uh, endlessly fascinating. So that's a, that's a book that I, that I have in my head right now that I'm, I'm, I'm uh, putting together the notes. So as a tidbit, if you had to spend the rest of your days in a foreign country other than America, can you imagine yourself living abroad? Very good question. Yes, I can easily. And, you know, this is kind of a nuanced question because people will say to me, what is my favorite country? And, you know, I would make a distinction between a favorite country and say a country that I want to visit or a country where I want to live. Um, you know, they're not always the same, but an American can live abroad uh, quite comfortably, generally, if you're willing um, to, uh, uh, to go to out-of-the-way places. Um, I'm fascinated with, um, with with much of Asia, I really enjoyed uh, my time uh, in uh, many countries there. South Korea is a remarkable country. Um, uh, you notice that, that the, uh, say, Vietnam and China, they're all abandoning Marxist economics. They know that it doesn't work. But if I had to live abroad, you know, I would probably live in South America or Central America because, um, 
there's there's aspects of the culture that are very familiar to us. You can live there um, fairly cheaply. Uh, many of the places are are quite beautiful. I enjoyed my time in Panama. Uh, I would enjoy uh, Colombia. I would enjoy uh, Brazil. You know, the same time zone or close to it, so it's pretty easy to get home. So yeah, that's so that's probably what I would do. And I would suppose you still have the freedom to do the work that you do in America with your profession. Yes, and uh, at least right now too, if you possess an American passport, that really is the uh, the portal to the world. Uh, you're able to go almost anywhere, and um, and you get a little better treatment than uh, than some might. My adopted daughter Sasha. Uh, when we were in the process of adopting her, she came to the United States on a Ukrainian passport. And it was fascinating to me how much differently she was treated because of the fact that she had a Ukrainian passport. The French wouldn't let her in. Uh, we had a layover um, in Paris, and uh, they would let us in with U.S. passports, but they did not want to let her in with a Ukrainian passport. So Americans, these are things that Americans just don't fully appreciate and uh and understand. But yes, generally speaking, I would be free to do the things that I normally do, and particularly because I'm not publishing in those places, you see. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm working on my laptop in a sidewalk cafe on a beach somewhere, and I fire off an article, and I send it back to the United States. So as far as the locals are concerned, I'm generally irrelevant. Larry, thank you for sharing your insights. Would you be kind in sharing how audiences can connect with you? Yes, ma'am. They can find me at Larry Alex Taunton. That's T-A-U-N-T-O-N, LarryAlexTaunton.com. Uh, you can find uh, uh, everything that I write goes there. Uh, you'll, you'll find it on the Full Fathom 5 blog. That's, that's at LarryAlexTaunton.com. And this book, Around the World in More Than 80 Days, Discovering What Makes America Great and Why We Must Fight to Save It, is available at fine online retailers everywhere. Simon & Schuster, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, you name it. Please buy it. Thank you, Larry. I look forward to crossing paths again. Uh, Thank you for having me, Sasha.